Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say that unless anyone says that they are speaking on behalf of a particular organization or group, you should assume that each person's views expressed on Tatter are theirs and theirs alone. I just want to make that clear to avoid misunderstanding. And now that I have effectively precluded any such misunderstanding, let's get started. Here's Tatter. On April 12, 2018, Dante Robinson and Rashawn Nelson, two black men, were waiting in a Philadelphia Starbucks for another man to join them for a business meeting. As was widely reported, they were asked to leave after not buying anything and ultimately were arrested for trespassing after refusing to leave. According to the Washington Post, the manager called police just two minutes after the men had arrived. That manager is no longer with Starbucks. As soon as I learned about this incident, I wanted to talk to a police officer in Philadelphia about what happened, how officers are trained to handle such incidents, and issues of policing and race more generally. G. Lamar Stewart, a Philadelphia native and a -a three-and-a-half-year veteran of the police department there, agreed to be interviewed. Importantly, he's also vice president of the National Black Police Association, Greater Philadelphia Chapter. We discussed the Starbucks arrest and a range of other issues, including implicit bias, race and policing, and, because he's also a minister, how his faith informs his work as an officer. This episode is titled, Brotherly Love. Do you prefer that I call you officer or reverend, or both? Just G. Lamar Stewart is fine. Uh, I'll try. I think, uh, or Reverend is fine. <laughs> I'm probably going, uh, Stuart, prob- Stuart is fine. Reverend's fine. Okay. I'll probably, I'll probably go with, uh, with Reverend then. Um, uh, yeah, just the combination of, uh, having, even though I'm no longer in the church, having grown up in the church and having respect for police officers, it just doesn't feel right to call you Lamar, even though I appreciate your uh, inviting me to do so. Bless you, brother. <laughs> so, you are a member of the Philadelphia Police Department. I understand that you're not uh, speaking on behalf of the department, uh, but I just want to make sure I'm clear on your background. How long have you been on the force? I've been in law enforcement for four years, almost four years, I should say. All four years in Philadelphia or was some of it elsewhere? Uh, uh, all my experience here in Philadelphia. It's about three and a half now, to be specific. Okay. And you are vice president of the National Black Police Association, Greater Philadelphia Chapter? That's correct. National Black Police Association. So what is the National Black Police Association, uh, Philadelphia Chapter, and what does your organization do in brief? Yes. So we are a body of law enforcement officers, community members, uh, citizens, community organizers, uh, that have come together uh, for the purpose of serving the community. While we have police, we're a police organization or association, not all of our members are actual police officers, but there are persons who are committed to serving <clears throat> the needs of the community, uh, but also creating a space where we can have intentional programs and events to kind of build a bridge between the community and police. Are you a native Philadelphian? Born and raised in Philadelphia, uh, 33 years old, and uh, born here, left uh, for a moment uh, to uh, serve in the military uh, for six years. Which branch? I was uh, active duty Army. Okay. 
uh, infantry or yeah i was in an infantry division um but i was uh, assigned to an artillery brigade uh deployed in 03 uh in support of operation iraqi freedom during the first part of that war and um came back to philadelphia in 2008 got into corporate america uh was uh, in corporate real estate from 2008 to 2015 early 15 uh that's when i became uh, joined this particular department I became vice president. Once again, that's vice president of the Greater Philadelphia Chapter of the National Black Police Association. I became vice president in September of 2017, and one of the one of uh, uh, you know, one of the pieces for me was uh, if I was going to accept uh, the role as vice president, uh, that it was important that every every month uh, that we would intentionally do some type of uh, community service project. You know, for me. You're going to be a community organization. You ought to be doing community work. And in this current climate, um, I think it's even more important for the community to see police officers and community servants, not just sitting in seats and collecting paychecks and storing away a pension, but really seeing uh, individuals who are who are committed to uh, serving the needs. Uh, and so that's what we've been we've been intentionally looking at areas as far as bullying in some of our schools. We've been addressing implicit, explicit bias uh, as far as training and also awareness. Uh, we've, we've dealt with issues of racism. We've dealt with issues uh, of confidence for some of our young boys and our young girls. And so uh, we, we, we try to address all the issues that are going on in our community, whether it's a police uh, issue uh, towards uh, or police issue with the community or a community issue with police, uh, or if it's just issues within the community. Um, one uh, one event that we did that stands out in my mind uh, for Black History Month just this past February, I took 25 officers, supervisors, and some even high-ranking officials uh, into a local uh, school. We had an, or- an event um, in which those particular officers taught uh, young people uh, on some pioneers uh, in in Black history that they would not hear of. Uh, traditionally, you know, they, they know about Martin, Malcolm, they yeah. know about Rosa. Um, but we talked about persons who are who are native Philadelphians, persons like Cecil Bassett Moore, uh, like Georgie Woods. We even dealt with some others, uh, you know, Madam C.J. Walker, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, persons that they don't hear about every day. And so that's just some of the work that we do as an organization. So I want to pivot to an issue that has certainly been salient in recent months in the current climate to which you referred. And I'm referring, of course, to the Starbucks incident. And that was the incident that motivated me to initially reach out to your organization. My understanding from a CNN report is that the department has instituted a new policy on how officers handle trespassing calls. And I want to get to that in a moment. But first, I want to go back to talk about the policy that was in force on that day, because again, I'm not a police officer and this is why I wanted to speak to someone who has experience as an officer. I would assume that officers would even under the old policy have had some discretion, but is that the case or, or, or is it that a manager or business owner is simply placing a call saying these two gentlemen are trespassing? Is that sufficient to uh, require officers, or was it sufficient to require officers to have to carry out an arrest? 
Well, let me first say this, and I want to very much clarify that I'm speaking on behalf of the National Black Police Association, Greater Philadelphia Chapter, yep. uh, and that not of Philadelphia Police Department. Um, so I, I'll talk through some practice yep. rather than former policy. Sure. Um, what what was common? Uh, and let's just talk about the events that day. Nine one one call came in. Police responded. Call was placed by that particular manager. Police responded responded there was some type of disturbance going on uh and in a nutshell uh they uh they were informed by the manager uh, that these said individuals were uh our brothers were trespassing and uh that they you know she no longer wanted them inside of the store uh i believe there's a lot of discretion uh for an officer uh at that point as to you know, what they're going to do in that particular moment. A wide range. Um, and I think if you would have talked to several different officers, some may have handled it the same way. Others may have handled it a lot differently. I think there was some level of vagueness and ambiguity uh, in, uh, in whatever the, if there was even a policy in place, but you know, there was just discretion to, you know, at, on the officer's level as to what would take place there mm-hmm. uh, at that particular time. Um, if, if I were in the situation at the time, and it's always easier to Monday morning quarterback, mm-hmm. uh, a few things would have happened. Number one, uh, my question would have been, why do you want them to, be, to leave? Have they caused any type of disruption as far as your business is concerned? Yep. And if the only issue was, uh, you know, that they had not purchased anything yet. Right. It, it would have been an easy observation to look around to see if anybody else met that criteria uh, and stated, you know, for the purposes of not perpetuating any discrimination or the perception thereof, either we will be present as you make an announcement, a, a, a broad announcement, or you need to put up some type of sign, you need to be able to share with the individuals some type of policy indicating yep. If persons aren't purchasing, then you cannot be here. And and we would, you know, I would have just been present for that person to do so, mm-hmm. uh, for that that manager to do so. If for whatever reason they chose not to go that route, uh, I would have. If I did not see the individuals being disruptive in any way, I would have communicated to that manager. Unless there is a disturbance going on, unless there. Customer, there's a customer or an individual that's inside of the store that's causing some type of disruption where um, other persons inside of the store or the location cannot you know, read in peace or they cannot right. interfere with business, you know, uh, the sales or something along those, that line or creating some type of safety hazard. There's no need to, to remove anybody. Uh, I would have articulated that uh, in some type of police report. Uh, and if a supervisor was needed at that point, um, per that manager's request, I would have opted to allow a supervisor, um, to, to speak with that individual in that regard. So you were kind enough to send me a link to a new policy that's online as of June 8th. Would it be fair to say that this 
new policy makes explicit the kind of approach you just described, or do you see some differences be- differences between what you just described and what's articulated in this new policy? One adjustment that we see uh, in this new policy is uh, that, and I think you know, I, I commend our uh, the commissioner of Philadelphia, their police department. I, I commend uh, him for putting together this uh, this this policy in a timely manner, of course, after the fact, but was placed together uh, in order to address uh, some of the, uh, you know, the the concerns of that day. Mm -hmm. Uh, But one piece that's that's required is that if a business owner is making a complaint that someone has, uh, is is, is trespassing, that there is, uh, or or there's some type of criminal trespass or defiant trespassing, that complainant or the caller, whoever that is, whether it's the owner, the manager, or some representative of the business, would have to be transported to a uh, divisional detective's headquarter, headquarters mm-hmm. and give a statement on paper showing that, you know, uh, signs were posted, yep. pol- you know, that it was clear policy, whether verbally articulated to the customer or to the person, the person who was trespassing, yep. um, or they, they know the policy was articulated to them, communicated to them verbally, or they saw the sign and still refused to leave. That person has to put that on the, on, on paper on, on, um, uh, and give a statement signed, uh, in front of investigators prior to an arrest actually being made. So as a business owner, I can't just willy nilly, Pick up the correct. phone, and then that's enough for an arrest to be triggered. Correct. That's correct. You have to be committed to the entire process. Seems like a reasonable policy to me. I, I most certainly agree. One thing that's been talked about a lot in the context of the Starbucks case is something that you referred to earlier, and that is implicit bias. I'm mm-hmm. curious. You said that the NBPA has done some programming related to that. Can you talk about that? Uh, so we have gone into uh, uh, several schools and local schools in the greater Philadelphia area, work with the principals, uh, work with uh, several uh, school administrators. Uh, we've conducted panel discussions with uh, in schools up to you know, 150, 200, 250 students uh, addressing the issue of implicit bias. Uh, and explicit bias. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, address the issue of stereotypes, uh, police misconduct, and then just interaction between uh, police and uh, w- what I believe is probably uh, the most vulnerable population in, uh, in the Philadelphia area um, as far as investigations are concerned uh, African American men ages 15 to 25. Yep. Um, and so we, we really have kind of focused our attention on that demographic. Um, but we've done this panel discussions and have done uh, scenarios in which uh, we've brought in persons who are trainers, uh, biased trainers, to walk through ways that a investigation can go right, ways that an investigation can go wrong, and if a young person finds themselves in a situation where this is just not going the way it's supposed to, what the way I know it's supposed to go. Yep. What's what's the best course of action for that young person? How can you ensure, or do your best to try to ensure, that you will walk away from that situation 
uh, without cuffs on you, to walk away from that situation without being harmed, uh, and, you know, of course, walk away uh, alive. Uh, and so uh, we've worked through, through some of those pieces in the training context. As important as that is, and I agree that it's important, that, as you describe it, simply focuses on the onus that's on the civilian, as it were, to walk away, walk away from that situation alive. Yeah. I wonder if your organization has also advocated for any, say, training of officers in an effort to place onus on officers to mitigate the effects of implicit and explicit bias? That's a great question. One of the things that we've been able to do, two pieces, uh, we, we've had some cooperation uh, in partnership uh, with some officials and departments in our area who have allowed some of their officers to attend some of these events, uh-huh. officers of, of every walk of life, uh, some who may not be from the inner cities, mm-hmm. to hear the training that we're, we're uh, setting forth, but also to hear from the community, to hear from the young people, to hear the concerns. Uh, so they have been in the room. They've, they've listened to the trainers. They've listened to, uh, you know, they've been able to be a part of this scenario to see how the other side feels uh, when, they're, when they're being approached, when, when uh, they feel like their rights are compromised in that moment. Uh, so, so from our perspective, they've, they've been a part of some of our training. But mm-hmm. secondly, we've also had the opportunity to uh, meet with some of the heads of police departments in our area to talk through um, what does it look like for us to, to uh, you know, have a board review uh, the training, both for in-service personnel as, as well as recruit training as well? Uh, what does it look like to allow our organization to be a part of that um, and have persons who are part of the community a part of that? One of the things that we see um, uh, in many departments uh, in the tri-state area um, is, is that in many of the police academies, uh, and the training uh, bureaus, you have officers training officers. And one of the things, I, one of the critiques that I've made, that many law enforcement communities identify themselves as a paramilitary organization. Mm-hmm. But I believe that they ought to uh, identify themselves as a service-based organization. And as long as we identify as paramilitary, we will come across as militant. And when you do that, and communities that are already disenfranchised, uh, where there's already systemic injustice, then it, it, there's always going to be this, this, this feeling from the community where they feel like they're powerless in that, in that conversation uh, and in, in their moments of investigation. And so one of the things that we've challenged with the chiefs and heads of, of police departments, what does it look like to bring in persons who may be a part of the hotel hospitality industry to do some of the training on Mm -hmm. service, on Mm -hmm. communication, on customer service. All of the training does not have to be facilitated by persons who are law enforcement. Mm -hmm. But also, what does it look like to invest in sending those who are in law enforcement and who are facilitated, sending them to civilian classes so that they can get a broader uh, a broader uh, sense of understanding and awareness um, 
and so that their own biases can be challenged and checked as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so we 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 started working again. I I've been in my role uh, not a year yet, but we we've started making some strides in the right direction. I believe uh, towards addressing both the the challenges of both the side of the youth or the community, but also challenging uh, the officer and the administration as well. In addition to being a police officer, you are a minister. You're, correct me if I'm wrong, you're pastor of Taylor Memorial Baptist? That's correct. Uh, Taylor Memorial Baptist Church, we're located um, on the north side of Temple University campus there in the heart of uh, North Philadelphia. Um, I saw an article in the Philadelphia Tribune in which you were quoted talking about how to bring people to Christ. And you were quoted saying, Sometimes people want to know, do you see me? Can you acknowledge where I am, how I feel, where I hurt? Now, I could ask you if you try to take that approach as a police officer, but of course you're going to say yes. Um, I think the more interesting question is, can you tell me a brief story of a time when you actually did take that approach to your work as a police officer? I try to embody that on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Whether we're talking about on car stops, um, you know, one of the things that I guess were, were my, I, I'm always concerned about the victims of crime. And I think in law enforcement, we place our, our, our hat on serving the victims of crime. Yeah. I think for me, in the, in the spirit of Christ, if you would, I not only am concerned about the victims of crime, I'm also concerned about the perpetrator, um, and those who may not be uh, actively doing anything criminal, but they've already been in the system and are one decision away from going back in. Mm-hmm. For instance, on a regular day, uh, you know, I'm, I'm constantly encountering young African-American, Latino males uh, who, uh, who are perhaps uh, on the corner uh, in, in the local area where I live and where I serve. Uh, we're working on a program via our organization. Uh, this is something I, I, I've done already on a on a monthly basis, but we're going to kind of do something more on a uh, on a larger scale in a very intentional way. And it's called Caravan for Corner Boys. One of the challenges that I'm having is we talk about meeting people right where they are. The gospel teaches us, you know, some churches have a come y'all mentality, meaning come here and then you'll meet him, mm-hmm. meaning the Savior. My, in my gospel, it says, go ye therefore, hmm. take the gospel to them. And if you take it to them and meet them right where they are, a miracle can take place. So via this uh, this initiative called Caravan for Corner Boys, one of the things that I've, I've noticed is that we're constantly stopping this pretty much the same individuals as we're doing pedestrian investigation. Uh, you know, we're interfacing with a lot of the same people, uh, particularly those who may may be suspected of being involved in some type of narcotics activity or some type of legal activity. A lot of times it's the same individuals that we see going through our, our investigation system. Whether they get arrested or not, that's a whole other story, but just the paperwork wise, the, the paper trail. Mm-hmm. So my thought is if we're, in fir- if we're a first responder and we're encountering the same faces, but nothing's changing in their life, 
am I really being a community servant? Am I really, uh, am I really helping the needs of, of those who are in the community? So what we're doing is we are meeting uh, next month with a group of employers, and we're bringing them into a, a room. We're serving them lunch, and we're saying to the employer, this is the type. This is the profile of an individual that that you may encounter. We're asking you to go out with us into the streets of Philadelphia. We're going to put you in a van, and what we want to do is take X amount of employers who collectively may have 200, 300, 400 job openings, stock room, maybe a busboy, environmental services, entry level positions that they're willing to give persons who may have been in the system before an opportunity to come work for their company. And again, you're, do, you're, you're, right. you're doing this as a police organization, a police association. As a police organization. And this, I've, now I've done this work on, on my own where I've taken individuals right off the corner, put them in my police car, and taken them to Lowe's or taken them to the Home Depot or taken them to Fresh Grocery or Grocery Store, knowing that there was a position available. But now we're doing this on a larger scale uh, where we're actually taking the employers with us and we're going out and we're taking them to some of the roughest corners uh, in the city of Philadelphia where we have uh, a lot of our pedestrian investigations uh, that are conducted by police officers. So we know that this is hev heavy, heavily populated areas um, as far as persons who are suspected to be involved in some criminal activity. And I use that word suspected very carefully. Yes. But, but taking uh, resources to them with hope, if we can save out of, 10 that may be on a corner. If I can get five, I get six who are willing to say, yes, I'll take that job and never turn back to this life again. If out of that 10, two were able to get a job for it, and they and they never return back to a life of, of crime or suspected criminal activity, then for me, that's a win. And that's what it really means to serve. It's not just about arresting people, but it's about helping people think about their life and helping them change their course of action. Does Larry Krasner know about that program? Larry Krasner is the recently elected district attorney in Philadelphia. I have a relationship with uh, his his team, uh, and I've talked through uh, that initiative with someone that's close to his circle. Uh, I have not been able to get to him just yet, um, and and that may be for a reason. Uh, so I do believe... Uh, you know, personally speaking, and this is me speaking personally, I support Larry Krasner, and I, I voted for him, and I'm not ashamed to say that. I know why. But I do believe we're in, we're in a day and time now where there needs to be some reform. There needs to be some progression. and needs to be some change in how we do police work, how the criminal justice system looks as a whole. And I think as the community sees more of this work, they will start putting their trust uh, back in the justice system and back in police officers. So you are, you're a black man, you're an officer. Do you ever feel as if your loyalties are divided? Do you feel pulled in two different directions? And if so, can you talk about how you manage that? I will answer that question very directly. Is no. Okay. Because I know why I'm here. There are times where I've, where I've been maybe at a protest and there are persons who don't know who I am. Mm -hmm. so the more work you do in the community, 
the more visible you are, people will see and they'll know the difference between the patch that's on your arm versus the name that's over your chest. And so the more work that I've done, I've been able to show people that I, I'm here to help, but not everybody that knows me or knows the organization or persons who, who I work with in the organization. But when you know why you're here, when you're when you stay true to your own values and your own convictions, then you're not torn. I I don't feel there is a blue culture. There is a a there's a blue culture, and some of that stuff is good, but some of it is is not not good at all. I'm not here to be blue. I'm here to be black and to do what's right and to serve the needs of, of people who look like me and the city as a whole and, you know, and communities all, all across this area. But there's something specifically going on in communities of color. And I, I'm here to advocate for people who look like me and, 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 and be a voice for the voiceless within the ranks. Whatever meeting I'm in, whatever room I walk into, if I'm standing in the ranks, if I'm in a car patrol car with someone, there's never a time that I will not press someone on a choice, uh, on a decision, on something that is seemingly wrong. I'm here to stand in the gap for people who cannot speak up for themselves. And I'm hoping uh, that through my journey uh, that I can inspire some other officers who are already in the ranks, but also those who, will, who are aspiring to become a police officer. In the words of Jay-Z, Sean Carter, I'm sure you're shocked that a preacher may be quoting him. <laughs> he said in one of his songs, you were who you were before you got here. Who I am, I'm a preacher. I'm a black man. I'm a father. I'm a preacher. I was all those things before I got to this job. And this job will not change who I am. This is a platform for me to further serve uh, community. This gives me more access into people's homes, into people's lives, and and I'm here to bring both the gospel, but also bring hope, and help, and healing to people who are in need. Um, unfortunately, at, at times, when you don't conform to the culture, you will be ostracized. But uh, if I can just let the preacher come out for a moment, greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. Uh, and so I'm in, I'm I'm inspired and I'm encouraged by by scripture and by the love that I have for Jesus Christ and the love that I have for mankind. Reverend Stewart, Officer Stewart, you are clearly doing good work. I wish you the best of luck and it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for chatting with me. God bless you, my friend. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Officer Stewart, who is also Reverend Stewart, for taking the time to talk with me. For more information about some of the issues we discussed, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find the page for this episode. There are links posted there. If you want to offer feedback on this or any episode, then mention Tatter in a tweet. The Twitter handle for Tatter is at tatter underscore rags finally to support tatter go to patreon.com slash tatter where all support is appreciated for now thanks for listening and be well